You're listening to the Baby Your Baby podcast, where we talk all things pregnancy, children, and parenting. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. Baby Your Baby is a KUTV 2 News podcast and is sponsored by Intermountain Healthcare, Broadway Media, and the Utah Department of Health. Hey, welcome to the Baby Your Baby podcast. We are, we've got a great guest with us. We're talking about medications and conditions in pregnancy and breastfeeding. Because moms, I know that you have a lot of questions when it comes to what can I take, what can't I take, what's safe, what is not. So we have called in our expert, Nurse Al Romeo. He is with the Utah Department of Health's Mother to Baby. So Nurse Al, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mammy, for having me out. We are so excited to have you on the Baby Your Baby podcast. Uh, let's get right to it. How do you determine what is safe to take and what is not safe to take during pregnancy and breastfeeding? Sure. There's a lot that goes into the background of determining those types of things. So a little bit more about who we are and what we do. We have experts that look at some of those exposures in pregnancy and breastfeeding. We're teratogen information specialists. So that means we have expertise in looking at those various exposures. Um, here at the Utah Department of Health, Mother to Baby, we're a joint project with the University of Utah. We worked with our medical director, a dysmorphologist who studies birth defects. And we look at all of the research around those different exposures. One thing that moms need to keep in mind and their providers is that there's always a background chance of having a baby with a birth defect. So everybody starts out, even the healthy pregnancy, with that background risk of about 3% to 5% of having a baby with a major birth defect. So when we look at some of these different things, we'll talk about how that background risk influences how we look at the research, and we'll look at all of those research studies and how we use that to determine if there's an increased risk or not an increased risk of birth defects for that exposure. And then you really looking at that are able to recommend to the mom what is safe for her to take because you're looking at individual cases kind of when it comes to her. As I mentioned, we talk about what increases or does not increase that risk. We try not to use the word safe mm -hmm. because nothing is absolutely safe. You can have too much oxygen. You can have too much water. So there's that, that kind of little nuance mm -hmm. to all of these different conversations about risk and benefit. Risk and benefit. Okay, so talk about... Give us a few examples where the condition is worse than the medication. An easy one to start with, everybody's familiar with fever. We all know that. We've all been there, done that, right? Right, right. You have the flu, you have some other viral infection going on, and mom feels like a lot of times that she needs to just tough it out. It's better to not take the medication. Well, fever, if she has that fever for more than 24 hours, um, over 101 degrees at weeks three and four, that can increase the chance for having a birth defect, spinal cord, spina bifida. Mm. So don't try to tough it out. Treat that um, fever so that you can keep it down so that we don't increase the chance of having that birth defect. Okay, that's one situation where you do want to get some medication. Correct. Okay. And she can use Tylenol anytime mm -hmm. during the pregnancy. We'll talk a little bit later about some of those non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and the challenges with those, aspirin, mm -hmm. ibuprofen, naproxen. There are some limitations on those. But yes, she could use the Tylenol to control that fever anytime in the pregnancy. That's okay. All right, what about untreated depression in pregnancy? That's a very common misconception. Mom feels like, I have depression. She's heard some bad stories about those medications. 
it's better to treat the depression because untreated depression in pregnancy, think about it this way. If mom is depressed, she's generally not taking care of herself as well as she could. She's not sleeping very well. She's not eating well. She's not exercising. And those types of things can cause problems for the pregnancy. They can increase her risk for miscarriage, uh, low birth weight, premature delivery. So the medications, the SSRIs, that are used commonly to treat those depressive symptoms, very well studied. We have hundreds of research reports on those. We'll talk about some of the limitations on those, but generally they can be used in pregnancy to control those symptoms so mom takes care of herself, giving her baby the best chance to start. Yeah, mom first in that situation. Correct. What about breastfeeding when it comes to, to antidepressants? Sure, breastfeeding, again, if mom has those depressive symptoms she's not interacting as best she can with baby baby needs those developmental cues so that baby can uh, learn the language mom's talking and singing to baby mom is breastfeeding and interacting with baby a lot and that helps baby reach those developmental milestones if mom is depressed and not at her best She's not giving baby those cues so baby can develop on time and not have those learning disabilities and things. So a little bit of those depression medications get into the milk, usually less than 6%. And generally under 10%, we're not really concerned about those. We don't really see symptoms in baby. So she can take that antidepressant SSRI, a little bit gonna get into the milk. We don't see side effects. Better for her to be interacting with baby on a regular basis. Okay, moms, hopefully you're hearing that. This knowledge is power and will empower you. Right. That's what we, what we like to do with this Baby Your Baby podcast. Talk a little bit about uncontrolled diabetes. It's one of the most common risks for heart and spinal defects. Right. If we could, if we could have everybody control their diabetes mm -hmm. during pregnancy, we would greatly reduce the amount of birth defects that we see. That's one of the biggest challenges we have with any of these different exposures that we're going to talk about is uncontrolled diabetes. So we do know that diabetes, yes, increases the risk for spinal cord defects and those types of things. So mom needs to have that controlled before she becomes pregnant. The spinal cord closes, baby starts out as a, a bunch of little cells, mm -hmm. then goes to a flat and then rolls on itself and closes. If it doesn't close correctly, that's how you get spina bifida, that's how you get clefts and things mm -hmm. like that. That closure doesn't finish. So the medications help mom control those symptoms of diabetes, the sugar changes and the spinal cord closes correctly. So mom can take her insulin during pregnancy, no increased risk of birth defects. The other day I had a call about metformin. We have less research on that one, only about 400 cases, but at this point we don't see any signals of increased risk of birth defects. So With metformin. Correct. For those that don't know, what is that? Metformin is an oral medication instead of the insulin that's an injection. Okay. And usually moms are on that metformin for uh, milder forms of diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, so if they're on that metformin, it's working for them, they can continue to use that during pregnancy. We don't see that increased risk. Better to have the medication than the birth defect. Absolutely, yes. Okay, so take your insulin. Now, some vaccines do more to protect mom while other vaccines do more to protect baby. Break down vaccines for us, Narcelle. We're only gonna talk about a few of those. You're hearing okay. lots about measles, mumps, Ooh, and rubella. We'll not talk about those, but we'll talk about some of the other ones you're not hearing as much about. We do have a whole podcast on vaccines, so we'll link that podcast to this one, but tell us what we need to know about uh, vaccines in pregnancy. Sure, so the flu vaccine is a good example. That one protects both mom and baby. 
So the flu vaccine does not increase risk of birth defects. Mom, if she has the flu during pregnancy, her immune system isn't working as well, so she can have respiratory problems. People die from having the flu. So we don't want mom to die during pregnancy. So better to have that vaccine before pregnancy so she doesn't get the flu during pregnancy. So that in one way helps mom and baby. Now the chickenpox vaccine is there to help baby. Mom needs to get that one before pregnancy so that she doesn't get chickenpox during the pregnancy. If she's never had chickenpox, never had the vaccine, go ahead and get that before she becomes pregnant. It takes a couple of weeks for the immunity to kick in. If she doesn't have that vaccine and gets chickenpox during pregnancy, remember that chickenpox, you have the little pox that causes scarring. Remember the developing fetus, those different structures are growing and developing. If the fetus has the pox, it can cause scarring, for example, on the eyes and you have blindness. Where the limbs are gonna develop, if you have that scarring, it can stop the limb from developing. So chicken pox during pregnancy can cause birth defects. So the fetus can actually get chicken pox if mom gets it. It is passed on to the that. baby through the placenta, correct. Wow, but it can cause some serious birth defects. Yes, so most things are gonna cross the placenta. Insulin doesn't, it's mm -hmm. a large molecule, it doesn't cross. But yes, these different viruses usually cross the placenta and can cause problems for babies. Syphilis does the same thing. We don't have a vaccine for syphilis, but that's one of the, the things those viruses can cause the, cross the placenta and cause problems. Okay, get your chicken pox vaccine for sure. Get your chicken pox. Okay, Tdap, I got this yes. when I was pregnant. And you're gonna get it every pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So this one isn't for mom. Mom's not gonna get whooping cough during the pregnancy. She's already had her boosters, but this one is to protect baby. The reason you get it late in pregnancy in that third trimester is because it takes a couple of weeks for immunity to, to hit its peak. In the third trimester, we want that peak to happen so that mom is passing the antibodies to baby. Baby gets those antibodies, and when baby is born, baby has that passive immunity to protect against whooping cough, pertussis. And baby can't get the vaccine at birth, but if baby has those antibodies and comes in contact with someone that has whooping cough, pertussis, they have that protection. That's why mom gets that every pregnancy, Absolutely. late in pregnancy. Absolutely. All right, there are times that mom and her doctor have to weigh different risks and benefits to make a decision about medications for serious health conditions. Correct. Talk a little bit about those times, those medications and those conditions. Here's a complex one that we have challenges with. Mm -hmm. um, epilepsy. If mom has epilepsy, she can have a grand mal seizure, she can stop mm -hmm. breathing, she can crash her car and kill herself and baby. So that's one of those conditions we wanna make sure is treated during pregnancy. One of the challenges is that epilepsy, there's something about the condition of epilepsy and some of those epilepsy medications, when you put them together, that you get a slight increased risk. Hmm. For example, one of those medications is valproic acid, valproate, and you get a slight two to 3% chance of having a baby with spinal cord defects. So we wanna try to balance that. Um, if mom is planning the pregnancy and taking valproate, valproic acid, she can talk to her provider and see if there are other um, seizure medications she can take, like carbamazepine, that we don't see those increased risk of birth defects. She can see if she can switch to it. Sometimes that's the only medication that will work for her and she has to continue on it. Mm -hmm. So if she can switch to a medication that doesn't increase birth defects, 
do that as you're planning, not during the early part of the pregnancy, but as that, that planning is happening so that she can be on that other medication and try to prevent those birth defects. So again, it, it that's a balancing act. It seems like in that situation exactly. and we want mom and provider and they can call us and we can talk about that specific situation. So it's difficult to give general recommendations a lot of times because there's a lot of nuances to this and, and it depends on mom's situation, what the doctor is doing for treatment, how the medication works, exactly where she is in the pregnancy or planning. So there's a lot of those details that we really need to have a conversation about. Yeah, that's something that they can call you about and get right. even more information from you and you can get more information from them. Now, you mentioned clonzepam. Or should we mention that now? Sure, that's one of the other medications that okay. can be used for seizures, um, has a less increased risk. For seizures, the more medications she takes together, the greater increased risk for some birth defects. So yes, there, there's a lot of, there's a variety of different medications that can be used for seizure disorders. And it, it kind of depends on, again, which one is gonna work for her situation and which one increases the risk for birth defects. All right, Nurse Al, earlier we mentioned aspirin, ibuprofen. Let's break that down now. What is safe and what is not? So aspirin generally, when moms ask us about it, should be avoided. All those non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, aspirin, naproxen, ibuprofen, should generally be avoided during pregnancy. Early in pregnancy, there is a slight increased chance of miscarriage. Um, during the, after the 20th week, the kidneys start to develop and there's a slight increased chance of having kidney development problems. Late in the pregnancy, if she's using those non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like aspirin, there can be an increased chance of fetal circulation problems. The fetal circulation works different than adult circulation or, or child circulation. We breathe through our lungs. Baby that's developing inside mom gets oxygen through the placenta and through the, the umbilical cord. So baby isn't using lungs to, to get that oxygen. So the, the blood is, is shunted differently so that it doesn't go through the, the lungs to pick up oxygen. What happens at birth is baby is exposed to that oxygen and the body knows to shut off that ductus arteriosus around the heart so that baby isn't getting oxygen from the placenta but getting it from the lungs. If we use those non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, that changes prostaglandin. And that's the signal that baby understands from oxygen to shut that down. We don't want that to shut down while baby is still in mom because there's no oxygen in the lungs. Right. So that's why we don't use those non-steroidal anti-inflammatories late in pregnancy. So again, um, the aspirin should not be used generally, but there are certain situations. Mm -hmm. For example, if mom has a heart condition, um, she has an increased risk of uh, heart attacks. She has a clotting disorder. That aspirin at a low dose, the 81 milligrams instead of the 325 milligrams can be used during pregnancy and breastfeeding. It's at a lower amount where we don't see those complicated issues. Let's talk a little bit about breastfeeding and aspirin. Right, because then how does that translate, right? Right, so once baby is born, Mom can have ibuprofen and naproxen, but still not aspirin. Still no aspirin, okay. Mom has probably heard somewhere along the line, don't give your baby aspirin. Don't give your kids aspirin, because if you have aspirin, that salicylic acid, in combination with a viral condition, you could have Rye syndrome. 
Rye syndrome is swelling of the brain and the spinal cord. Think of it as a concussion. Mm -hmm. So we don't want that spinal cord and brain to be swelling. Um, so we avoid that aspirin because of that great risk. It, it doesn't happen very often, but it's a serious risk. Mm -hmm. So avoid aspirin during breastfeeding. Again, if you're taking that low dose, we know how much gets across, usually less than 10%, usually somewhere 2 to 3%. So that aspirin that's getting across from the low dose aspirin is not enough that we're concerned about it for rise syndrome. But we don't want mom to be taking aspirin on a regular basis for headaches. Right. Um, there's a medication called bismuth subsilicate. It's in pepto mm -hmm. And that's a relative of aspirin. So don't take Pepto-Bismol Pepto in pregnancy or breastfeeding either. No. Right. So aspirin's a no, unless you, there's the exception which you have mentioned. Correct. But you need to talk to your medical provider about that. Correct. Or call Nurcell, he'll help you out. What about ibuprofen? Is that the same for ibuprofen? Ibuprofen, she can use once baby is born. Okay. We don't have that risk of rise syndrome. We don't want to use it in pregnancy. Right but she can use it after baby is born. Let's revisit really quickly what is safe Tylenol. Tylenol, there are some studies that show if you use it for more than 28 days, every day, all day long, there may be some problems. We have some challenges with the methods in that mm -hmm. research. Okay. But generally, yes, if you're using the Tylenol for headaches, um, fever, those types of things, aches and pains, you can use that Tylenol as needed occasionally during the pregnancy breastfeeding, yes. Oh, Nurse Al, this is such good information. Moms, I hope that you are just really able to understand this and you're gonna to need to listen to this I think a couple of times just to be able to let it all sink in. But we do wanna to mention too, you know, this is a complex balance. It may require different decisions for different situations based on mom's medical condition. We do just wanna say that. Let's talk a little bit. I've got more questions for Nurse Al about vitamins, herbal supplements, even some morning sickness medication. We'll get to that in just a minute, but first, let's talk about the different information from different providers and understanding those differences. Sure, so a little bit more about the research process. Generally, um, as I kind of mentioned, we are Mother to Baby Utah. We have an international organization, it's called the Organization of Teratology Information Specialists. And we have 14 centers here in the US. Utah is one of those two in Canada, like I says, we lost the one up there in Toronto. Um, what we do is we work with other centers across the world. Um, we work with MotherSafe in um, Australia. We work with the European Network of Teratogen Information Specialists. And there are research projects going on across all of those different organizations. Here in the US, um, Mother to Baby California runs most of our national organiz international organizations research studies, but there are other pregnancy registries. So it, it matters how those research studies are set up. And there are very few of us, as I mentioned, there's only a, a certain number of those centers. There's a limited number of people that have this detailed expertise and it matters how those research uh, projects are set up. For example, in California, they try to set them up with one group with the uh, no exposure, the control group. No exposure, no condition, for example, asthma. Another research group has the condition but no medication, asthma without the medication. Remember we talked about diabetes. That's how we know that it's insulin that helps protect. Diabetes causes the problems because we separated out 
the disease and the medication. And then we have that third group of the disease combination with the medication. So that helps us with the methods so that we can tease out some of those differences. So when we look at the research studies, a lot of times there will be research headlines. There will be abstracts or summaries of those research studies. And the providers that are busy that don't have time to go through all of those details in the methods can pick up some of those details that are in the summaries and not understand how that plays out. So we'll talk about one of those examples. For example, depression. We've already talked about depression is worse for the pregnancy than the medication. We know that because in one of the research studies, we found, remember there's that background risk. So we expect to see some different problems, different birth defects in all of the research studies. One of the research studies around the SSRIs, we saw an increased chance of baby having a breathing problem, persistent pulmonary hypertension, PPHN. So in that one study, we look, took a little bit closer look at it. We didn't exclude, or the researchers didn't exclude moms that had babies with diabetes. We didn't exclude those babies that were higher birth weight. And that's a risk factor for PPHN, that breathing problem. So if you don't exclude those, you have a higher chance of seeing that risk factor of babies with breathing problems. So we have one study that shows breathing problems. We have 100 studies that don't show breathing sure. problems. Mm -hmm. if, the, if the doctor or the mental health care provider or the pharmacist looks at that one study and doesn't consider the context of all the other studies, they might misunderstand and they might tell mom, you shouldn't take that medication because it causes breathing problems for your baby. Mm -hmm. So when mom calls us, we have to explain some of those details. That so matter, that details matter. that matter, right? right. Mm -hmm. So that she understands why her OB prescribed this medication and why her pharmacist told her she couldn't take it. Sure. Because there's all of those nuances and, mm -hmm. and what we do is we look at all of that. That's our job to have that information. I'm not an expert in what to prescribe. Mm -hmm. That's the mental health care provider sure. and the OB. But we look at those exposures and how they affect pregnancy and breastfeeding. The pharmacists and the OBs, they don't have time to go in through all that detail. So but that's what you guys do. Right. right. That's why there's misinformation out there is because there's always new information and you have to have the history to be able to interpret it. And you and your team are doing that Correct. so that we do not have misinformation. Correct. That's great, Nurselle. That's just a little background as to how you come up with the benefit and the risk. Exactly. I don't want to say safe, benefit and risk. Correct. Okay. Let's get to some of those other questions because I think our moms will have questions about this too sure. when it comes to vitamins and herbal supplements. What do you recommend in your experience? So here's what the deal is with the vitamins and the supplements. Okay. The FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, regulates those differently. Mm -hmm. So your medication has to go through a lot of processes to be able to see that it's safe for someone to take. They have to prove that the, the side effects of it are not so bad that it can be given. They have to prove that it works. The, the supplements and vitamins are regulated as food. Mm -hmm. So they can have at it. They can use those. They don't have to prove that they're safe. They don't have to prove that they work. They don't have to prove that they have the ingredients that are on the label. So you may see some of those news stories about supplements and herbal products having contaminants in it, sand. We saw some of those um, research studies out of New York. So the herbal products and the supplements are a little bit different than the medications. 
with that lack of FDA regulation, there's not an incentive to do the research studies. So nobody's getting paid to do research because they don't have to have the research to put out melatonin as they do to put out Prozac. Mm -hmm. So there's that difference there, and it makes a difference in how we can provide information. So what we do is we look at if there is any information. Generally, with the herbal products, we don't recommend them because of that lack of research around them. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some that we do have research on. For example, we're going to talk a little bit more about nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. Yeah. Ginger is one of those from the space program that we do have more research on. And we have research in pregnant women, so we know that pregnant women can use ginger, so that's not an issue. But melatonin is one of those that we don't have good research on. So we are more cautious with that because we have that lack of information. We also, again, are more cautious because of the, the possibility of contamination. Now, there are some um, processes, some groups that do look at those and see if they are pure. Um, the, uh, they have, might have a USP or NSF label on them that shows that they're pure. But generally, avoid those different uh, herbal products. The vitamins are kind of in the middle. We have more information on those vitamins, but generally at the recommended daily allowance. For example, vitamin C is one we get questions about all the time. Mm -hmm. Vitamin C, if you're taking it 80 to 100 milligrams, not a problem for pregnancy or breastfeeding. If you take it as in some of your other products like Airborne, you're getting 1,000 milligrams. Oh, wow. The challenge with that is that if mom takes that for a longer period of time, baby gets used to that higher dose. When mom stops taking it, baby's body responds by thinking there's not enough. Mm -hmm. And has a rebound effect, scurvy. Mm -hmm. So that can cause problems for baby's joints and things like that. So better to take that vitamin C at the recommended dose. Whereas vitamin D, most of us don't get enough of that, you can have higher amounts and not have a problem in pregnancy. So there's those nuances with the vitamins in herbal products. And of course we want our moms to be taking a prenatal vitamin. Correct. And the prenatal vitamin, one of the challenges, remember we talked about mom may not know she's pregnant, prenatal vitamin prenatally before she gets pregnant because folic acid is that most important part. Remember we talked about the spinal cord closing. She has to have that folic acid in her system to help the spinal cord close before she realizes she's pregnant. And so you're supposed prenatal. to take so much folic acid, you look for the prenatal vitamin to make sure there's the right amount. Can you trust the label that it's that it, what's in there is in there? Generally on those prenatal vitamins, yes. Um, those uh, name brand products, yes. Don't try to get into those ones that have the herbal products plus mm -hmm. the prenatal vitamins and all those other things. Oh, Correct. Nurse Alvis is good information. Okay, let's go. We have one more question. We want to get to the morning sickness yes. question because we know a lot of our moms experience this. I experience this. And there is, uh, you know, some OBs are prescribing an anti-nausea medication. Is it safe? What do you recommend? And I shouldn't say safe. What is the risk? What is the benefit? What do you recommend? There are other options. And one of the things to remember is we don't recommend the different medications. Your doctor will determine what is best for her situation, and we will provide information about whether or not there are problems with it. Mm -hmm. So mom, if she calls us and asks us for a recommendation, we'll send her back to her doctor. Mm -hmm. But we can provide her with information about anything she asks about. We can't offer that you know, tell her, here are the range of medications you can use, we can tell her details. So mom may call us and ask us, you know, here are some of the things I've heard about. I've heard about ginger, I've heard about um, fenugreek, I've heard about 
um, meclizine. I've heard about some of these motion sickness medications, Dramamine. I've heard about Benadryl. So all of these medications can be used to treat nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. And it depends on the severity in which one um, would work better for mom in her particular situation. Some women, as we know, respond to different things differently. Ginger is one of those that works generally well for mild to moderate nausea and vomiting pregnancy. Once you, and we have good research on that. Once you start to get into the moderate, there's some of those other ones, um, like the combination of uh, vitamin B6 and doxylamine unisom that moms commonly hear about. Um, that one, yes, works well for moderate. There are some timing issues. Take it at night, generally, and your doctor can help you figure out your dose and how many times per day, depending on how severe the nausea and vomiting is. So there's a variety of prescription and over-the-counter ones for that mild to moderate. Once you start getting into the severe nausea and vomiting in pregnancy, hyperemesis gravidarium, remember Princess Kate had Yes, it. we, yeah. You mm -hmm. might end up in the hospital. Mm -hmm. so then, like she did. Yes. Mm -hmm. So there are some cases where it's very severe. Zofran was designed for chemotherapy. So it's designed for, it's kind of a heavy duty. Think about your aspirin versus morphine. There are medications for different types of pain, just like there are different medications for different types of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. So that Zofran, we have limited research studies on it. One of the research studies, and this is where some of the confusion, some of that misinformation comes from. One of the research studies used the same data where we did not see an increased risk of birth defects, used different methods and saw a slight increased risk of birth defects, some of those most common ones the spinal cord mm -hmm. defects. So Zofran, because we don't have enough information, remember we said with some of those medications we have hundreds of studies. Right. With Zofran with only a few studies, we're not convinced one way or the other. Okay. So we want to reserve that one for women that have that most severe type of nausea and vomiting pregnancy and the other medications don't work. Mm -hmm. If the other medications work, great, use those medications. But if she's going to end up in the hospital, that's a greater risk for mom and the baby. So better to use the Zofran in that situation. But I wouldn't use Zofran if you just have mild nausea and vomiting. And pregnancy and the other medications can handle it. Okay. Narcel, we should mention, too, that Zofran, we didn't mention earlier, that is the anti-nausea medication that can be prescribed to some women during pregnancy that are having severe morning sickness. Correct. Okay, Nurse Al, oh my goodness, we have such good information. Thank you so, so much. We are going to say bye to Nurse Al now, and if you have any questions, of course, email us or comment below on the Baby Your Baby podcast. Thanks, Nurse Al. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this week's Baby Your Baby podcast. If you have a topic you would like our Baby Your Baby experts to discuss, leave us a comment and don't forget to subscribe. Baby Your Baby is a KUTV 2 News podcast and is sponsored by Intermountain Healthcare, Broadway Media, and the Utah Department of Health.